pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's an expression from the uh, classic movie, The Wizard of Oz, right? So you've got Dorothy and the crew, they've, they've come up, they've shown up at the Emerald City, finally made it to the wizard, and he's this great, powerful, sort of mystical being, he's a floating head and all these different colors and things like that. And Toto, little Toto, runs behind and pulls back a curtain and reveals that the, the great wizard is really a frail and cowardly elderly man who's afraid of being found out. And he says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, even though they realize, wait a minute, the wizard is not who they thought he was. Sometimes in our lives, it's necessary to be behind the curtain. It's, it's necessary to be behind the scenes. I think about the people who work week in and week out to make this happen. If you're watching online, there's a bunch of people who work regularly to make this happen. Uh, today, uh, we have Tasia and Sam and Abby and Rick and Ricky uh, and others. Uh, Kirk, who's normally around, but I think he's on a cruise this week, so he gets a free pass. But all of these folks work really hard to make sure that the, the worship experience you have works and works well. And so give them a big round of applause. We don't say thank you to them enough. So we're really grateful for them because their job requires them to be behind the curtain. But sometimes in our lives, a lot of us choose to be behind the curtain. A lot of us choose to put forward an image of what we are, what we think people want us to be when really we're somebody else behind the curtain. We want people to think a certain way of us. We want people to think nice things of us. And secretly behind the scenes, we are somebody else. And we have a word for this. It's called hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, that's what we call it in our society today. And it's this idea that I think is really prevalent in our society today is this thing called imposter syndrome. It's this fear that people are gonna find out that I'm not as smart as they think I am. I'm not as qualified as they think I am. I'm not as pretty, I'm not as funny, not as qualified. And it's led to a life of hypocrisy for many of us. And so today what I want us to do as we look at Galatians chapter 2 verses 11 through 14 is I want us to look at how we can root out hypocrisy in our lives, how the gospel changes and, and rescues us from hypocrisy, how it gives us freedom from hypocrisy as we continue this study of the book of Galatians. And I want to do this by essentially looking at three things, what hypocrisy is, what it wants, and what it does, what it is what it wants, and then what it does. First, let's talk about what it is. Hypocrisy is inconsistency. That's what it is. It's inconsistency. Verse 11 of chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, by the way, Cephas is Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So Peter heads down from Jerusalem to Antioch, which is a city in Syria. Uh, it's the third largest city in the Roman Empire probably at this time. And Peter heads down from Jerusalem to Antioch just to get to know the church. He's hanging out. He's enjoying their company. He's there to encourage the brothers and sisters in Christ. That's all he's there for that we know of. And then something happens. 
He gets word that people from his home church in Jerusalem are coming to also pay a visit. Again, they're not spying on anybody. They're doing the same thing that probably Peter is trying to do, just getting to know people. It's just a friendly visit. But Peter decides, rather than continuing to conduct himself as he has, which was eating with Jews and Gentiles alike, he was going to withdraw and only eat with Jewish people. Now, why would he do this? Well, in Jewish culture, there were varying degrees to how much you could associate with Gentiles if you were Jewish. Some people were fairly liberal about it, would say, well, as long as you didn't eat food sacrificed to idols, that's fine. As long as you bring your own lunch, that's fine. Others would say, hey, absolutely not under any circumstances. And so Peter decides, I'm not going to cause a rift. I'm not going to cause a problem. I'm just going to avoid this. Now, I cannot communicate to you how important and the significance that eating with somebody had in the ancient culture. We don't really have a modern day equivalent for it because in our culture, you break bread with somebody almost as a, as a way to get to know them, as an initiation into friendship, right? If you wanna conduct a business or go on a first date or get to know somebody, you go and have a meal. In their culture, eating the meal was a, was a ladder step in friendship. You were, you were making a commitment, almost like a, uh, betrothal, but not romantic, just a, a, a connect. You're, you're entering into a covenant of friendship, so much so that if you were to harm someone with whom you had a meal with, that would have been a gross social violation. In fact, some cultures wouldn't even let you slander somebody with whom you ate, which I don't know what we would do if we couldn't talk about people we just ate with. We would be super bored on the drive home from dinner. But in their culture, you couldn't do it, right? So what happens is Peter's initially eating with Jew and Gentile alike, and he withdraws from their fellowship. And I cannot imagine uh, the, the, the rupture that this created. And I don't think Peter necessarily understood it either, because I don't think this is intentional. I don't think he is intentionally trying to be hypocritical. And before we get all on Peter's case, there could be a whole host of reasons why he does this. One, it's very plain in front of us. Maybe he was just being cowardly. Maybe he just didn't want to put up with social pressure from his friends back home, and he decided to just withdraw. We've seen him take the easy way before uh, in Jesus's trial. He denied Jesus. He did that before. Maybe he's doing it again. I think more likely, Jesus or, or Peter is the uh, the apostle to the Jews, just like Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And so I think Peter is sitting here saying to himself, I don't want to impair my ministry. I don't want to impair what's going on. I don't want to impair the work of the gospel. I don't want to have to explain myself to them. I'm just going to take a step back, which probably would have been fine, except it doesn't seem like he explains this to anyone else. Just makes a decision on his own. It could just be that he's exercising his freedom in Christ. Hey, I'm not going to, I'm eating with them now. I'm not going to eat with them later, whatever. But whatever the reason is, Paul gets his dander up and really gets irritated with Peter. And it's really for two reasons. One, Peter is inconsistent in his behavior. On one hand, he seems to be engaging with the Gentiles, which is Paul's ministry area, and then withdrawing. He's doing one thing, and then he's doing another. That's classic hypocrisy. So on a micro level, Peter's being a hypocrite. But on a macro level, Peter is also being inconsistent. 
Because in verses 1 through 10 of this passage in Galatians, and then in Acts chapter 15, there is a major event that takes place. It's called the Jerusalem Council, which, surprise, happened in Jerusalem. And basically what happened is people from the church all over the Roman Empire sent representatives to Jerusalem to discuss a problem. And it was essentially, how Jewish does somebody need to be in order to be a Christian? Are there things that need to take place? Does circumcision need to happen? Do you have to convert to Judaism first and then Christianity or not? And ultimately, the council decides, no, you don't have to become Jewish first. However, there are some moral practices that should be carried over from Judaism to Christianity. And those are largely three. One, take care of the poor. Two, don't eat food sacrificed to idols, which is essentially leave behind your pagan worship. And three, abstain from sexual immorality, which is essentially what we still practice today. We still practice all three of those. So it's a big deal. And so, but in Paul's opinion, by Peter going back on his fellowshipping with the Gentiles, he seems to not just being inconsistent in the moment, he's seemingly overturning and repudiating this seminal council that took place in Acts chapter 15. And it's a big deal for Paul. It seems like Paul, or that Peter, on a micro and a macro level, is being inconsistent. And this is what hypocrisy really is. It's inconsistency. It's unreliability. It's saying, yes, I think that. No, I don't think that. And then when the moment circumstances could benefit you, you flip-flop. You say, eh, you know what, yeah, sometimes I will do that. Or, eh, you know what, sometimes I am going to do that. Really, this shows up in a lot of different ways in our lives. The most common one, the one we think about, is saying one thing or doing another or doing something with one group of people and then not doing it with another group of people. Those are kind of the classic examples, but there's two others that I want to key in on that we're not as sensitive to. One is unintentional hypocrisy, and I think this is Peter's case. I don't think Peter is intentionally being hypocritical, and I think very few of us wake up in the morning, look ourselves in the mirror and say, buddy, you be the biggest hypocrite you can be today. You tell people one thing and then you go and do just the opposite and you do it better than everybody else. No, we don't do that. I think genuinely we do want to stick by our commitments. I think genuinely we do want to honor what we say we will do. I think we genuinely want to be consistent, honor our agreements. But so often what happens is we wind up giving the answer to people or cultivating an appearance that we think people want to hear or want to receive from us rather than what is genuinely going on. So for example, somebody, one of your friends buying a house and you're like, hey man, when you guys buy that house, let me know. I want to help you move. I would love to help you move. That's not true. We, none of us would love to help anybody move. Just be honest. Now, will I begrudgingly help you with a scowl on my face? Yes. But I would not love to help anybody move, right? Or how about this? Hey, yeah, let's get together. Let's get our families together. It sounds like a mob movie. Like, let's get the families together. Let's get the families together. Let's, let's hang out. And then when an opportunity comes, you get a text or a phone call. It's like, hey, we've got a free weekend. You guys want to get together? Nah, it's been really busy. We're good. You're unintentionally hypocritical. You don't mean to be inconsistent, you just are. It happens by accident. 
Two, another way we're hypocritical is by being ambiguous. By being ambiguous, right? We see this a lot in the church. This is like our favorite brand of hypocrisy. We've left behind the doing one thing kind of thing. We were ambiguous. It's like, ah, uh, you know, I don't read my Bible as much as I should. What does that mean? What does that mean? Does it mean you don't read it every day? Does it mean you don't read it every other day? You are leaving it up to the person hearing that statement to interpret how much you should be reading your Bible and then to think well of you. So I could think, hey, you should be reading your Bible every day. That's what a good Christian should do. And then I think if somebody doesn't read their Bible as much as they should, you read it six out of seven days, which is still pretty good. And because I want to think well of you, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. But when you say I don't read your Bible like I should, what you really mean is I don't read my Bible. You see it in other statements too. I hear people say, oh, I struggle with this sin or that sin. What does that mean to struggle? Are you like drunk all the time? What does that mean? Oh, I don't pray like I should. Again. Or my favorite one, and this is one, now that we have online church, this is a good one. I don't go to, ch or I go to church. I go to church regularly. That's ambiguous. You can regularly go to church six times a year. That is a regular practice. If you, if you break it up, space it out, you can regularly attend church six times a year. But that's not. I can think that means you're here every Sunday and you're a deacon. That doesn't, I don't know. Ambiguity allows us to be hypocritical. And what we do is we say, well, I never said that. You just inferred it. I may have implied it, but you inferred it. And we abdicate the responsibility of making things clear. Inconsistency, ambiguity, unintentionality allows us to hide behind the curtain. We get to bury ourselves just a little bit deeper behind the curtain. So you can ask yourself, am I inconsistent? But that's way too low of a bar question because the answer is yes, you are. That's like asking somebody, hey, name me six cities that Alexander the Great founded. Guess what? He founded 70 that are all named Alexandria. So if anybody ever asked you, Name, a city, name six cities that Alexander the Great founded. Just say Alexandria and you've covered 70. Maybe a better question to ask yourself is, what would I lose if somebody found out how hypocritical I actually am? How many friends would be devastated by your inconsistency and your inconsistent affections toward them and your loyalty to them? How would our spouse respond to the inconsistent way we uphold our vows? How would your job compensate you if they knew how you worked with your time and they knew how much around other coworkers you talked bad about your company or bad about your employer or bad about your boss? Maybe this isn't even too hard of a question to ask. And I say that because hypocrisy has this, this thing that it does to us. And it's where we don't, we lose track of what's real and what's not. We lose track of what's the image I'm projecting and what's really me. George Orwell says in a story that he wrote called Shooting an Elephant, which is a weird title, but that's what it's called. He says, he wears a mask and his face grows to fit it. So many of us wear a mask and then over time we wear it for so long that we actually begin to confuse the image we project with the person that we are. You don't know where you end and where the mask begins. And it feels natural. It feels comfortable. It even feels like who you really are. 
Maybe the only consistency we have in our life is our pursuit of inconsistency, playing the role that we're expected to play in front of other people in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, constantly in a play, constantly going through wardrobe changes. And so many of us wonder why we're anxious or why we're depressed or why we're overwhelmed or why we're tired. I don't know if you've ever done acting, but it's exhausting. And imagine doing that with your whole life, all the time. It's exhausting. The gospel offers us freedom from hypocrisy. It offers you freedom from the mask. Romans 8.29 says to be conformed to the image of your son. Jesus does not want to give you a replacement for the mask with what is your true face. That's not what he wants to do. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel wants to take the mask and take it away and replace it with the face of Christ. You are made in the image of God and sin has caused that image to be scarred and marred. And so God wants to restore to you the whole image of his son. And you might think, well, that seems like another mask. No, 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 no. Not when it's what you've been created to be. You are never more you than when you are more like him. That's the pursuit of identity. So we all sit here and say, man, hypocrisy is a bad thing. We hate it, we're wounded by it, and we find out about it. So why do we do it? What does it want? What does hypocrisy gain us? It gains us influence. Hypocrisy wants influence. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. What happens is the rest of the Jews, this doesn't mean the Jews who came up from Jerusalem. This means the Jews in the Antiochian church. This means the elders and the deacons, the people in their, their connect groups. They were mixed. They were Jews and Gentiles and they fellowshiped together well. And then when Peter went and did what he did, there was a split in the church and it fell along racial and ethnic lines. Even Barnabas, one of the missionaries that they commissioned, was like, I don't know what I should be doing here. This must have been so damaging. And I don't think this was Peter's goal to sit here and be like, I'm going to go split that church up up there. No, that's not what he did. He was trying to mislead people. But he wasn't trying to mislead everyone like he did. He was trying to mislead the group from... Jerusalem. But unfortunately, the people in Antioch got caught in the crossfire. They got caught in the blast zone of his hypocrisy. Because this is the goal of hypocrisy. It's influence and misdirection. You're trying to alter the perception of reality that people have about you and about your circumstances. They want you, you want them to think more favorably of you. And this can be for a whole host of reasons. You want people to think well of you. You want people to think good things. You want people to think you're smart or funny or pretty or wealthy, successful. You might want things to be easier. Sometimes we're hypocrites just because we want to avoid the fight. I'd rather be anxious than deal with this person. And we all know who this person is. If you don't, I have bad news. You're this person. <laughs> Hypocrisy is a major problem because it's a lie. 
It's a lie. And what's bad is it's an acceptable form of lying in our culture because it's almost passive for us. It becomes natural. It's playing a part. It's a lie. But here's the problem with being using, a hypocr- uh, using hypocrisy to lie to people and to influence them. If I lie to you directly, it's very focused, right? So if you say, Travis, did you have a Diet Coke this morning? And I say, no, I did not have a Diet Coke this morning. You'd be like, okay. I had a Diet Coke this morning, very much so. It was delicious. But I lied to you. Now, unless you go off and tell another person that I had a Diet or I didn't have a Diet Coke when I did, I, my lie pretty much stops with you. For whatever reason, I've decided to lie to you about my drinking habits, right? But with hypocrisy, it's indiscriminate. I put on a projection of an image and I'm trying to fool some people. I'm trying to influence a certain group of people to think that I'm a certain way, that I think certain things, that I do certain things. But everybody else who sees me that's not a target also is affected. They're also misled. They're also uh, confused, right? Think about it this way. A lie is like a guided missile. It goes right to its target, it explodes, and maybe there's some other people that are hurt, but largely it's focused, it's intentional. Hypocrisy is carpet bombing your entire life with deception. And it's just a firebomb. And if I can use this illustration, I feel like it's kind of crass, but I think it works. It almost works sometimes like a suicide bomb as well because you begin to be caught up in the lie as well. You're affected by it. You're hurt by it. This influence, you're seeking to not just influence one person with a lie, you're seeking to influence whoever happens to be around you. You're distorting their image and their perception of you. It's a lie. It's what it is. Our society is obsessed with influence. It's why hypocrisy is so attractive. There's an entire group of people, largely through social media, TikTok, Instagram, called influencers. That's their job. They'll even put it on like a description. It's like an influencer. They want you to to do the things they do, think they're fashionable, live their life, adopt their practices, and then they get money, revenue from advertisers for it, right? That's fine and well and good, but it's become so uh, uh, powerful, the ability to influence people, that they will use different apps. One of them's called, let me see, I've got it right here, Facetune. Facetune's the app where you can subtly alter your appearance, not in large ways, but you can kind of clean yourself up. Oh, I've got too many freckles. I'm going to cut some of those out. Oh, my, my eyes are wonky, but like a degree, I'm going to make them look more perfectly symmetrical. And then they post stuff. And what happens is we all think like, oh, that's what real beauty looks like. Or, oh, man, that person's really got it all together. Or, wow, that suit hangs just like it's supposed to hang on that person. It's an altering of reality for us. And we're affected by it. The more you consume it, the more your your perspective changes. And if you're on social media a lot, this is happening to you. And now I know many of us in the room are going to sit here and be like, yep, social media generation, got it all wrong. Hold up, my boomer friends. I'm coming for you. Don't worry. We have other names for influencers too. They just actually call it what it is. What's a consultant? Isn't a consultant an influencer? Don't you walk into a company, you're hired to go there and give off the appearance that you know exactly what you're doing so that you can save their business. Don't you try to convince them that your practices are the best 
whether or not they specifically apply to that situation or not. Don't you get paid whether they succeed or fail? It's hypocrisy. Isn't that what advertising and sales has become? You don't sell a product, you sell a lifestyle. And you know, when I see that car commercial, the Lexus, uh, what is it, December to Remember event, I know if I roll up with a Lexus, my wife's gonna kill me. Because <laughs> I didn't talk to her first before I made a major purchase. But you seem to think that if it's got a bow on it, I'm gonna get out of this. It's influence. Doctors, do you tell your patients practices that you yourself do not do? Preachers, of which there's a couple in the room, do we tell our people spiritual practices that we ourselves do not practice? I do my best to live out the sermons that I preach. I do not do it perfectly. I fail a lot. Even that statement feels like I'm trying to influence you to think better of me than I am. <laughs> we are desperate to make sure that people do not see behind the curtain. And because we live in a society that's not very communal, we're very independent, we don't like to get vulnerable with anybody because they're going to see the man or the woman behind the curtain. And we use influence to make sure they're so distracted with the image that's up here that they won't see the scared, nervous, insecure, imposter behind the curtain. We fear vulnerability. We do. But what's the big deal? I mean, who cares? If everybody's doing it, what's the problem, Travis? Well, this is what hypocrisy does. It inflicts pain. It inflicts pain. Look at verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now, Peter is obviously not standing up in front of everybody and being like, everyone, stop eating together. No. But think about who Peter is. We think of Peter because we know his whole story. We're like, ah, oh, goofy Peter. He gets called Satan at one point. What a goob. No, 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 no. Peter is top dog in the church at this point. He is one of the pillars with John and with James, the brother of Jesus. He's a big deal. He is every inch of status in the church that anybody has probably ever had. So when Peter chooses to do or not do something, his behavior coerces other people, right? His behavior convinces other people that it's okay or it's not okay to do something, even if he doesn't mean it. Unfortunately for Peter, he has to be a little bit more big picture minded with his actions than he's being. How encouraging it must have been to the Antiochian Gentiles to have the pillar of the church eat with them, to establish fellowship with them. How cool would that have been for them? And then the heartbreak of him being like, yeah, I can't eat with you guys right now. Why not? I just can't do it. You've got to put on a face for these guys. I wonder how many conversations had to happen in Antioch between believers, between Gentiles and Jews being like, man, I'm sorry, we were just misled by Peter. It was an accident. I didn't mean it. I was trying to do what was right. 
Some people think that Barnabas' breach with Paul actually started here and culminated with the separation over Mark. It may have even split up a missionary team. Hypocrisy is damaging because it's a lie, and lies hurt people. But what's more is we tend to think that hypocrisy is okay because it's passive. Do you know the harshest things that Jesus has to say? The harshest people he goes after in the Gospels are hypocrites. In Matthew 23, there's an entire chapter. It's called the woes. Not like, whoa, but like, woe to you, woe to you. And he goes after Pharisees, and almost every single time, he calls them hypocrites. He calls them blind guides, barring the kingdom to other people, children of hell, which sounds a lot worse, ignorers of faithfulness, justice, and mercy, full of greed, self-indulgence. And it culminates in Matthew 23, 27 to 28. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Pay no attention to the dead people behind the tombs. Pay no attention to the man behind the tombstone. We think that Paul calling Peter out in his hypocrisy is scandalous. It's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he would just say that to Peter, like in front of everybody. The real scandal is that we just let hypocrisy go on in our own lives and the lives of other people completely unchecked. Hypocrisy is a never-ending painful quest for other people's approval. We put on skin, we shed skins just to get people's approval, to be adored, to avoid being hurt. We do it without thinking, without care, without sensitivity to who might be harmed in the process. And in Matthew 23, Jesus lays at the foot of hypocrisy so many hurts and evils. He apparently lays greed there, gluttony there, mercilessness, injustice, faithfulness, faithlessness, and he even puts murder there at one point. And just as deep and painful as hypocrisy is, it has infected every single one of us. Because Adam and Eve, they were hypocrites too. Now, hypocrisy was not the first sin. We all know that. It's pride. Pride is what drove Adam and Eve to eat the fruit in the garden. But the second sin was hypocrisy. How do I know? What is the first thing they do after they eat the fruit? Hide, get some clothing. They sew together some fig leaves, right? That's what they do. We're still doing that. We still are working on sewing together fig leaves. Our fig leaves, though, are Facetune, Instagram, suits, dresses. And we think, ah, I'm not going to hurt anybody by doing this. But we all recognize there are subtle tweaks to our personality that we can make to gain things that we want. We've been doing it for a long time. And what's sad is we've never had to learn it. You were born knowing how to do it. Think about this. Have you ever had a, a group of little children at your house? Like small kids. Maybe that family that you were supposed to get dinner with, you finally got dinner with them. And they come over and they bring their kids and you're like, oh, go play in the room. Go play you know, in, 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 in Betsy's room. And it's loud and rambunctious and you're like, okay, yeah. And then all of a sudden things get quiet. <laughs> Too quiet. We all know what's going on. They're up to no good. And they want you to think that everything's fine. It's quiet, so everything's okay. Pay no attention to the children that are climbing on things that they shouldn't be climbing on, right? It's hypocrisy. 
presenting an image of one thing, wanting people indiscriminately to believe and influencing them, inside you're doing something completely different. You didn't have to learn it. And many of us have brought it into adulthood. We've just gotten more significant or more sophisticated with it. We don't use fig leaves anymore, we use the computer. We don't use being quiet, right? We, sometimes being loud is the way we show that we're different than what we really are. So what's the cure for hypocrisy? How do we get free from the bondage of it? Jesus tells us in Matthew 20, 23, 12, right before he goes after the Pharisees, he says, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If hypocrisy is distorting reality, and confusing everybody around you as to what really is going on, then humility, we know, is a proper perspective of how things really are. Humility is letting go of that and saying, no, this is what's really the truth. Humble people are consistent. Humble people show who they really are. And unfortunately, we can't always be humble because we're full of sin, we're full of evil. We're sinful people. So what happens? What does the gospel do here? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, after uh, man sins and after God hands down curses, it says in verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Adam and Eve, God took Adam and Eve, got rid of their fig leaves, their attempts at hypocrisy, and gave them real clothing real things that would cover them up. And it cost blood. It cost, it cost a consequence. It cost a sacrifice. And so Jesus Christ, the Son of God, clothes himself in humanity. He's 100% God, 100% man. And he's genuine. He's not a hypocrite. He's not kind to God and kind to man. No, he's 100% of both. Consistent all the way through. And he lives his life perfectly. And when he has the best opportunity to be a hypocrite that anybody's ever had, people are asking him, do you think you're the son of God? They ask him, are you here to lead a revolution? And all he has to do is say, look, you're, this is way overblown. I am in no way trying to do any of these things. And then when they beat him and let him leave, he can just go to his followers and be like, the revolution is still on. But no, he says, no, this is what you say. This is exactly what's going on. And he's killed for it. Do you know why he's killed for it? Because he loves you, because he loves me, and because he loves his father. And so rather than being clothed in the skins of an animal, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. When you put your faith and trust in him, rather than trying to justify yourself, rather than trying to be the hypocrite, showing God, look at what I am, look how good I am, you instead go to God humbly, not exalting yourself, but you say, Lord, I'm hopelessly hypocrite. I can't tell where the mask ends and where I begin. Would you please set me free? And he will take you and he will clothe you. Just as the skins were ripped from those animals, the skin was ripped from the flesh of Jesus Christ so that you could be set free. And then that curtain, the curtain that we talk about, right? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. It's interesting, right? That there's a curtain in the temple that separates God from man. And it's ripped in two. Your curtain doesn't just bar you from full fellowship with other people. It bars you from fellowship with God. Let God rip your curtain. Bring yourself, whatever you are, whoever you are to Christ. Submit yourself to him. And, and this is what you do with hypocrisy. 
When you don't try to be more humble. That doesn't work. That's just more hypocrisy. You have to go to God every time you detect yourself being somebody you're not, or every time that you get called out for it, which is rare, but it does happen, and praise God for when it does. And you go to the Lord and you say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Give me your face. Shape me into your image. Hypocrisy is a dangerous thing. Don't downplay it. It causes damage. It seeks influence. And it's inconsistent. But go to the Father. Go to Christ for healing. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the cross. This great thing that tears the curtains, rips them apart so that we can be who you've made us to be. People that give you glory and love and affection and right standing with you. Lord Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone here who's not been clothed in your righteousness, I pray that they would come today and by faith be given what you've promised them. I pray that we would all seek you humbly and leave behind lives of hypocrisy. It's in your name we pray.